0: Nice uh, for me to be here again today And uh, grateful for the opportunity to visit and to look at the Bible with you If you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn uh, with me to John 13 If you don't, don't panic, I will try and read it as helpfully as I can John chapter 13 and uh, we'll read from the first verse so last time that that I was here we looked at that incident in the life of Peter where he asked Jesus how many times um, should I forgive people that offend me and hurt me and wound me and uh, of course Jesus told him that he was to do that um, ad infinitum really He was to forgive and forgive and to go on forgiving and uh, that was a challenge but that's what Jesus said to him and uh, today we turn to this section so John 13 it was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour or sometimes that's translated his hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. And Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not every one was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Just a prayer, and then we'll turn our thoughts to this passage for a bit. Father, we thank you for um, this incident in the life of Peter and the life of Jesus, And we thank you for all that it teaches us. We we thank you that um, those of us who have truly been born again by your grace and have been truly transformed um, through conversion and have experienced your forgiveness. Lord, we thank you that the words that Jesus uttered, you are clean, are true of us, and that amazes us that we've been bathed in your cleansing and pardoning mercy and that the slate has been wiped clean yet as we wander through this world Lord we realize that uh, we do stuff that's not just God glorifying and we harbor attitudes that are uh, a little ugly on occasions and uh, sometimes we say things that um, somebody that is a partaker of the divine nature someone who is endeavouring to reflect the loveliness of Christ shouldn't say and sin clings to us and we pray for your cleansing afresh this morning and we ask that uh, Lord you will wash us clean and restore a right spirit within us and renew that relationship that we have with you that sweet relationship of child and father and we pray that those things will be removed and not hinder or in any way uh, come between us and so we pray for your forgiveness and we pray for uh, for your forgiveness even for the speaker this week as, as he has said things and done things and thought things that he shouldn't have and Pray that your forgiveness will come and sweep over us and wash over us again. So, Lord, we want to really get to grips with this passage. We're not here just to mark a card to say that we were in church. We're, We're really here to learn from you and to hear you speak to us. And we pray that you will do that. We pray this humbly. In Jesus' name. Amen. So I I was the pastor, I've been the pastor of two churches, one in Northern Ireland and one in Western Canada and I've left both of those churches and when I did so um, obviously I had to preach a final sermon or if you like a farewell sermon and uh, I didn't find uh, either of those occasions particularly easy, I enjoyed the people that I worked with and I really um, Loved the people that I was the pastor of, and I didn't find it easy, um, but it had to be done. And, And what you have in John chapter 13 to 17 is really a farewell sermon that Jesus preaches or at least shares with his disciples in that upper room on the eve of his crucifixion. There are a number of farewell sermons in the Bible. Um, for instance, Moses preaches one in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 31, 32 is a farewell sermon that Moses preached to the children of Israel. Joshua preached one, Joshua 23, 24. You can read that sometime. But what sets this sermon in John 13 to 17 apart from the others is that this is a sermon that was preached by Jesus. It's a sermon which, among other things, uh, is a sermon in which the Saviour expresses his uh, deep-seated love for these disciples that have followed him and learned from him and will soon represent him. But I think what makes this sermon unique is that it's a sermon in which Jesus doesn't just use words. He also uses actions to communicate his love to his disciples. In fact, it's a sermon which actually begins with with an action scene or an action section. Now, the action scene or the action section is not really a drama, because a drama is where you... Act out the role of another person and you do something. It's not a drama. This is a real life expression of the Savior's love and his humility um, for his disciples. And it's a love and humility that he asks his disciples to emulate. It's an example which he sets, which he asks his disciples to follow. And so it's a little different from a drama, but it is nevertheless an action scene, something that he does. And it's here um, to remind us that what is done on occasions is every bit as important as what is said. We forget that sometimes. What is done is often just as important as what is said. Um, actions often speak louder than words don't they I mean the good Samaritan what is it that we remember about the good Samaritan it's not what he said it's what he did as he travelled along that road to Jericho and met that poor guy that was beaten senseless and, and then the religious people they walked past the Levite and the priest oh, were too holy and too busy to stop and help this poor Samaritan but the good, the good Samaritan, uh, he stopped and helped this poor uh, chap and brought him to safety. On the night that, um, that Jesus stood in that boat, remember the night that the disciples were caught in a raging storm? You know, some of us might remember what Jesus said, but most of us remember what Jesus did. And what he did was he stood up and he spoke to the winds and waves and silenced the storm. And again, it's what Jesus did that, that we remember. I, as I think about the life of Jesus, I, I remember more of what he did than what he said. See, so you, you think about that incident where... That woman that was caught in adultery and she was dragged before Jesus and, and they were going to stone her to death and it's what Jesus did that, that I remember as he wrote on the ground and as he told these hypocrites, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. It's what what Jesus did, not what he said, often that we um, remember. And the disciples, I think, will remember many of the things that Jesus said, but they would never, ever forget what Jesus did that night in that upper room. They would never, ever forget it. They would never forget how his humility and his love contrasted with their pride and their obstinacy they wouldn 't forget the contrast that, that that unfolded and was played out that night and What struck me was that when Jesus wanted to give an expression of his inexhaustible love to his disciples, he did it first by serving them and then uh, through reassuring them with his words. So the story is fairly simple. It's Thursday afternoon, Mark 14, 12. It's Thursday afternoon. It was the day when the Passover lambs were being slaughtered. It was the 14th of Nisan The Jewish month of Nisan. Jesus uh, had made his way towards Jerusalem. He sent two of his disciples ahead of uh, him into Jerusalem and he told them to follow a guy that was carrying a pot of water and that he would lead them to a house where they were to go in and make preparations for Jesus to commemorate or celebrate or remember the Passover. So later that evening, uh, when Jesus and the rest of the disciples arrived uh, at the house where the two who had gone before them had made preparations for them to remember the Passover, it seems that evening when they arrived, all of them just entered into the house, straight into the room, and all of them, it seems, took their place at the table. None of them were prepared to um, provide the common courtesies that were usually provided when guests entered a house, wash the dust off their open sandaled feet and uh, put a little, uh, wash them a little bit round the face and put a little oil on their heads and just allow them to feel refreshed as they come in from the searing heat and the dusty uh, roads that they'd, they'd walked along. Uh, I was in Rome uh, this summer and it was 41 degrees one day and uh, walking around in that kind of heat is just incredible. So I can appreciate someone as you walk into a room, just wiping your face with a cold cloth and washing your feet and putting a little oil on to take away the smell of uh, whatever it is. So, but no one was prepared to do that as they entered the room that night. Washing someone's feet, it seems, was a was a fairly uh, was a particularly humble task. It was such a menial task that uh, it was on the list of things that Jewish slaves were not expected to do. Washing someone's feet was beneath even a Jewish slave. They didn't have to do it. There are a list of things that Jewish slave was not expected to do, and that was one of them. And it seems that none of the disciples were prepared to lower themselves to do something that not even a Jewish slave would be asked to do. I mean, if you think that you're important, are you going to stoop that low? Are you, if you think you're really important, are you going to really wash someone's feet? So they took their place at the table and they waited for the meal to begin. They waited for uh, the food that had been prepared to be served and for for the Passover meal to begin. As they sat around this table, not on on chairs but on cushions, with probably with their feet uh, st- sort of sticking out behind them, a little bit different than we are used to. Then suddenly, Jesus got up he took off his outer garment and he wrapped a towel around his waist and he took a basin of water and he got down on his knees and one by one he washed their their dusty smelly grimy feet most of them it seems were fairly comfortable with Jesus the Lord of glory washing their feet which is fairly alarming isn't it That you would sit there and you would be comfortable to allow Jesus to wash your feet. Peter, it seems, was the only one that really struggled with the idea that his master should wash his feet. In the same way in which John the Baptist struggled with the idea or with the suggestion that he should baptize Jesus. He felt that Jesus should be baptizing him, not the other way around. And uh, Peter knew that things were a little out of sync. This just wasn't right. It didn't feel right. It didn't sit comfortably with him. That Jesus was on the ground washing his feet. And he said to Jesus... Uh, you you can't do this and Jesus says if I don't wash you you you've no part with me so Peter then said well then wash all of me my hands, my feet, every part of me and Jesus says those who have had a bath only need to have their feet washed you are clean but not all of you so let me just try and pull this little story apart into three sections and uh, make a little bit of sense of it and and then we'll be through so first of all There's a bit of an introduction to Jesus right at the beginning of chapter um, 13. A little bit of an introduction to Jesus. Jesus, John, as he writes his gospel, wants us to know who it is that's on his knees so he, he, in the first few verses there's a few statements which really introduce us to the, to, to who Jesus is, and the first thing is he talks about his hour the Lord knew that his hour had come that's an interesting statement isn't it the Lord knew that his hour had come up until this point if you're reading through John's gospel we've read it again and again that his hour had not yet come so in chapter 2 verse 4 he's at the wedding feast of Cana in Galilee uh, his mother asks him to Inter, uh, to, to 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 intervene when they run out of um, uh, something to drink and and Jesus says why do you involve me he says my hour has not yet come again chapter 7 verse 30 he's teaching in the temple people don't like what he's teaching people are beginning to hate him Uh, the guards in the temple are watching him but we're told specifically no one laid a hand on him why? because his hour had not yet come and again and again we read that statement his hour had not yet come but now we've reached chapter 13 and we read that his hour had come As the disciples gathered in that room, Jesus knew that the hour of his death was upon him. And as you think about the repeated references to his hour uh, over the three years of his public ministry, you get a sense of the magnitude of this moment that had arrived. I'm sure the angels must have been looking on with bated breath as they realized that he had reached his hour the hour of his death this is is the hour that had been spoken about way back in the book of Genesis chapter 3 verses uh, 15 when it said that when God said to Adam and Eve that he would send someone to crush the head of the serpent that is just about what is that is what is just about to unfold He is just about to crush the head of the serpent through his death on the cross. His hour had come. Again and again in the Old Testament you've got references made to the day of his death. He would be led like a lamb to the slaughter. He would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities. This is the moment that Jesus had come for according to his own words. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to lay down his life, a ransom for many. This is a humongous event that is about to unfold his hour had arrived and on the eve of his hour he's on his knees washing his disciples' feet I, I think sometimes when we read about that we lose sight of the significance of Christ's hour Uh, it it is the climax of history when Jesus died on that cross and took our place and our wrath and our punishment so that we could go free wounded for me, wounded for me there on the cross he was wounded for, for me now gone my transgressions and now I am free All because Jesus was wounded for me, his hour had come. Secondly, he speaks not just about his hour, as we think a little bit about this introduction to Jesus, but he also speaks about his love. It says, Jesus loved his own and he loved them to the end. Interesting statement, isn't it? He loved them to the end. What does that mean, he loved them to the end? Well, it could have meant that he loved them to the end of his life. Right to the very last breath. He loved his disciples. Maybe that's what it means. Despite the horrors that were about to unfold. Despite the awfulness that he, the sinless one, would be made sin for us. Despite their failures. Despite their unbelief and their lack of faith. Despite the fact that one of them would deny him. And all of them would desert him. Despite all of that, Jesus loved them to the end of his life. Maybe that's what it means maybe it doesn't mean to the end of his life maybe it means to the end of their lives he would soon leave them but his love for them would remain unchanged he loved them and he would continue to love them as the children were singing neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature would be able to separate them from the love of God which is in Christ So no angel, no demon, nothing now, nothing in the future, no illness, no difficulty would ever separate them from God's love in Christ. So maybe it means to the end of their lives. But I think what it means is he loved them to the end in the sense that he loved them to the uttermost. It was not possible for them to be loved more than Jesus loved them. He loved them in a way that was perfect and faultless. And by the end of this chapter, Jesus will have demonstrated his love for them by washing their feet in humble service. And by the end of this book, he will have demonstrated his love for them by dying on a cross for their sins. The love of Jesus is greater by far than ever has been told. I wonder if you're here and you've been disappointed by the love of others. Ever been disappointed by the love of others? A father, a mother, a spouse, a partner? Well, I just want to say to you that here is a love that will never disappoint you. It is not possible to be loved more than a Christian is loved by Jesus. Did you know that? It is not possible to be loved more as a Christian than than Jesus loves you. He loves his people to the uttermost. And to be one of his sons and daughters is to be the object of that love. You know... If, if, if I was speaking at a conference a while ago and my family were there and I used this illustration I, I said if a fire broke out in this room um, I'd do all everything that I could to help you all but not before I had first rescued those two girls sitting down there because they're my daughters and I love them with a passion and they are the first people that I would want to help because that's the relationship that I have with them. And, and, and I just feel overwhelmed by God's amazing grace to me that he loves me to the end, to the end, to the uttermost. It is not possible to be loved more than God loves me. The third thing that John tells us by way of introduction is he tells us a little bit about his authority. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and that he was returning to God. You could preach a sermon on that one statement. Verse 3 is an amazing verse. Jesus knew that he had come from God. That speaks of his divine origins. He knew where he came from. He knew that he was returning to God. That speaks of his future glory. He, he was going to be restored to the glory that he had with the Father before he had entered entered into um, Mary's womb his future glory and then he speaks and he knew that the father had given him all things which speaks of his authority all things had been put under his power the rule of Jesus was absolute oh he was poor he had nowhere to lay his head he had no home that he could call his own he had no property deeds to leave to his mother as he would be crucified on the cross but he was rich, rich in power, rich in authority. He was, in fact, the Lord of all glory. I was speaking um, one man one day to a gentleman on the streets of. Edinburgh so I sometimes take the students out on outreach not often because other people on the staff do that but sometimes I, I just go out with them because I want to meet ordinary people and not students for a little bit and talk to people And so I was chatting to this guy on Princess Street right at the Duke of Wellington statue at the low end of Princess Street this guy come up to me and he said to me so what makes Jesus any different from any of the other prophets a great question What makes Jesus any different from all of the other prophets? And I said to him, this is what Jesus sets Jesus apart from all of the other prophets. He is the only one under whose power the Father has placed all things. He is the only one to whose authority death must bow in obedience. As he stands outside the grave of a man who has been dead for four days and calls him forth. He is the one that can call disease and even nature itself to heal. He stands on a boat and speaks to the winds and waves and nature obeys him. Everything has been placed under his power. That's what John tells us about this one who's about to get down on his feet. He has authority over everything. I was interested to read a while ago... um, Uh, literary giant Samuel Johnson was once asked to prepare a funeral sermon for a little girl that had died and he went and spoke to the family and asked about some of her special qualities and the parents said to Samuel Johnson well one of the things that's special about our little daughter who passed away is that she was always kind to her inferiors oh said Samuel Johnson and how did she work out who her inferiors were well, there's no difficulty in working out who Jesus' inferiors are. All things have been, pl- have been placed under his authority. He reigns supreme over all- it all. He is the one who has absolute power and absolute authority. So much then for introductions, and introductions are important. His hour had come, his love, he loved them to the end, and and his authority. Um, Everything was subject to his authority. A little bit then about the example that Jesus set. A couple of things about that. First of all, the pride. The problem that gave rise to this incident was a lack of humility that existed amongst the disciples. So, if you ever have a chance to look at Luke chapter twenty-two to tw- verse twenty-four to thirty, you'll see that di- on their on their journey to Jerusalem, a dispute had broken out about which of them was the most important. Oh, I'm the most important. I'm I'm the number one disciple. No, no, I'm the number one disciple. I'm more important than you. I've done more stuff than you. I'm more significant than you. And, and there was a dispute about which of them was the most important. And, and that dispute or discussion had been ongoing on their journey to Jerusalem. They possessed a competitive spirit. Each of them wanted to be the top dog. The all important one. Each of them wanted the elevated position. So when they entered the house, if this is a discussion that's brewing in the background... I'm more important than you, you can understand why none of them were prepared to wash each other's feet. (coughs) So they sat at the table full of obstinate pride. I mean, if you really feel that you're the number one, you're not going to get down on your knees and wash someone else's feet. And they're full of obstinate pride and they're sitting there, sitting there around the table, full of pride and full of obstinacy. I'm not doing it. Don't think I'm doing it. He can do it. He's he's further down the ranks than me. He can do it. They had lost sight sight of the fact, uh, I I think, that they were were at least a bunch of slow learners. They had been chosen not because of their gifts and not because of their greatness. Uh, They had nothing... That they hadn't been first given by Jesus. They were chosen because of God's goodness and God's grace. They were chosen because of him, not because of them. They were fishermen and farm laborers, chosen by grace to accompany Jesus. They were nothing, and the one that they served was everything. And sometimes we as the Lord's people get things a little bit out of focus, don't we? they'd forgotten that they were nothing and, and we sometimes forget that we're nothing we sometimes entertain this notion that we are something and I'm a little better than them because I'm a little bit more gifted than them what, did, what do you have that wasn't given to you by God and, and what do you have that couldn't be taken away from you in an instant Jesus could silence me before I leave this building before I finish preaching this sermon and I would never speak again Jesus can close the doors of proud churches. None of us have nothing. We have nothing that wasn't given to us by God and God could take it away in an instant. So why in the world do we entertain such foolish notions of pride in the way that the disciples did? They became so full of themselves that they wouldn't take up the lowly role. The lowly, lowly role of a servant. I was interested to read a while ago about D.L. Moody slipping into a church service. The great evangelist slips into a church service. And and there's a guy sitting beside him and he can't, behind him, a young student minister. And he can't believe it's D.L. Moody sitting in front of him. He can't wait for the service to end so that he can ask him a question. So the service is over, and he taps Moody on the shoulder, nice to meet you Mr. Moody and he's, he's uh, all excited that he's met D.L. Moody and he says to Moody, thinking of something stupid to say he says to Moody, would you pray for me? And, and Moody said, sure, what would you like me to pray about? What, what, what do you want me to pray for? He, he, and, the, and the student says, would you pray that God would keep me humble? And Moody looked at him and said, and what would you have to be proud about? And it's a great question. What, what do any of us have to be proud about? Well, so much then about their pride. What about his humility? So what happened? The meal did not proceed. Jesus looks at them around the table. And then the Lord of glory, who had been given all things, says John, The one for whom the heavens opened and a voice was heard to say, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. This one who had come from the Father and was returning to the Father. The one before whom every knee would one day bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. The one who had created everything that was made. The one who was with God at the beginning and was God. Takes off his outer garments, picks up a towel and washes their feet. And then when he finishes, he returns to the head of the table because that's where he belongs. And it's an amazing scene. The one whose presence was flooded with the praise of angels. The one who was and is and is to come. The one who holds the keys of death and hell. The one who will reign supreme for all eternity. Bows and washes the feet of twelve men. Who are full of pride. And consumed with the issue of which of them is the most important. And one of them is is a traitor one of them has already agreed to betray him one of them has already colluded with the religious leaders to lead them to Jesus when the opportunity came along would you wash the feet of Judas I mean really would you wash the feet of Judas I'm not sure that I would have I might have thumped his feet a time or two but Jesus, knowing what Judas had already did, done, rather washed the feet of this traitor. Some of us would hardly bid the time of day to someone who rubbed us up the wrong way five years ago. But not Jesus. There's a graciousness here. There's a love here. And there's a humility here that those of us who follow him are called upon to emulate. Before Abraham Lincoln became the 16th president of the United States, he was called the original gorilla by a man called Edwin Stanton. And if you've ever seen a picture of Lincoln, you'll know that he had a beard and and uh, and so on, big long arms and and. Uh, he had this political opponent called Edwin Stanton and Edwin Stanton used to refer to him in all kinds of derogatory terms he called him a low cunning clown on one occasion on on another occasion someone was going to Africa back in the day to buy a gorilla as a pet and bring it back to the states and and Stanton wrote to the gentleman and said don't bother going to Africa to buy a gorilla you could buy one right here in Springfield, Illinois in in the form of Abraham Lincoln (laughs) When Lincoln became president, he was president for a year and he had to replace his war secretary. Who do you think he appointed as as his new war secretary? Edwin Stanton. People came to him and said, why in the world did you appoint Stanton to be your war secretary? Uh, He says, because he is the best man for the job. And I will treat him with every courtesy. And so he did and when Lincoln was eventually assassinated and his body lay in that state room Stanton was the first person to go and stand over Lincoln's lifeless body and with tears running down his eyes he said here is the greatest leader of men this world has ever seen Lincoln's patience overcame Stanton's hostility the humility of Jesus as he gets down on his knees and he washes their feet and then just finally in, in relation to, to the example that Jesus set let's think about um, his call upon his disciples to emulate them Jesus wasn't just washing feet he was setting an example that he wanted his disciples to follow verse 15 I've set you an example that you should do as I have done no no I've set you an example. He did not say, I have instituted a model that I want you to repeat twice a month. Um, Humility and servant-heartedness are not that easy. It's not simply that we do in a service once a month. He didn't say, so once a month I want you to get out basins and wash each other's feet. It's not that easy. It's a way of life. That's what Jesus is calling us to. It's to be possessed of a servant heart. We are to follow the example of our master in serving one, one another just as he served us. But some of us will only serve if we can be noticed. If it will give us recognition. Remember speaking to a man who told me that he would never serve as a deacon because he felt that he was eldership material. The little girl who went to India as a nurse and who sat in a leprosy hospital washing filthy feet followed the example of Jesus. It was her way of life. The person who is prepared to go and sit in the creche and mind young children, the young children of others, even though their families have long since flown the nest, follows the example of Jesus' as servant heart. Following the example of Christ means putting yourself out to help others. It means putting yourself out and doing menial, lowly things so that their needs are met. That, that's what it means to follow the example of Jesus. I was interested to read a while ago that Amy Carmichael went to India She arrived in India with a tropical fever uh, and a temperature of 105. Those who greeted her thought that she wouldn't even last six months. But she died 53 years later in India, having never returned to England. If the ultimate and hardest cannot be asked of me, she said, if my fellows hesitate to ask it and turn to someone else, then I know nothing of Calvary love. 53 years of missionary service in India. She saved the lives of over a thousand abused and abandoned children, most of them girls. Back in England, her name was put on an honours list, but she wrote and asked for it to be removed. Because she served someone who never received any honors from men. And she wasn't looking or working for the honors of men. She was working for God. Well, here's the last thing. Just two quick things and then we're finished. A little bit about the cleansing that's depicted. Jesus... Uh, has got down on his knees and he's washing their feet Uh, Peter doesn't want Jesus uh, to wash his feet are you going to wash my feet and Jesus says to him if you are not washed you you can have no part with me if you haven't been washed you can't have any part with me now Jesus is not saying that he doesn't like hanging out with smelly people and if you follow the gospels through you'll see that exactly the opposite is true Jesus hung out with smelly people. And he didn't have a great deal of time for the guys wearing white robes and perfumed foreheads. What he is trying to say is, if you're not washed, you're still stained by sin. And I, as the Holy One, cannot have fellowship with you. And Peter didn't understand that Jesus was speaking in a spiritual way. So he thinks that Jesus is still talking physically. And he he says, so Lord, wash all of me. Wash all of me then. If I can't have any part of you unless I've been washed by you, then wash me from head to toe. And then verse 10 and 11, Jesus says, those who've had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And then there's that great statement, and you are clean. Though not all of you you are clean Peter had already been bathed in the pardoning mercy of God and once you've been cleansed and made right with God you never need to undergo this fundamental cleansing again you've been justified in God's sight your sin has been dealt with the record has been washed clean isn't, isn't the work of Christ in the life of a sinner almost more than you can believe? Isn't that statement? As you think about it in relation to your own life and you are clean, isn't it? It's almost incomprehensible. You are clean. I am clean. If I've experienced the pardoning mercy of God, I've been justified in God's court my sins have been removed from me as far as the east is from the west an infinite distance why have they been how is it possible for them to have been removed from me because they've been laid to the account of another who paid the penalty that those sins deserved. so I spent a summer living by the sea uh, when I was younger and in the evenings I used to walk along after the day was over Uh, we were involved in evangelistic work in a place called Port Rush and walk along the beach and there were just castles and mounds and holes everywhere just like a mess just up and down she looked along the beach it just looked like it had been dug up and and, and it was just a mess and then I really enjoy walking and I I used to go out in the morning and I'd I'd walk uh, along the same beach and it was just level. It just completely level. Every hole had been filled. Every sandcastle had been leveled. Just completely leveled. What had happened? The tide had come in. And it filled every hole. And it had leveled every hill. And the tide of God's forgiving grace has swept over my life and your life if you're a real Christian. And it's leveled every hill and it's filled every hole and we've been bathed in the pardoning mercy of God and we are clean we are clean so much then for the cleansing of conversion what about the confession of a Christian those who have had a bath only need to wash their feet but they do still need to wash their feet when we're washed by the grace of God, we may be clean, but our feet do get dirty as we walk through this world. If someone comes to visit you, if you, you are having someone for Sunday lunch today, you take them home for lunch, and uh, they say to you, Do you mind if I just go upstairs and freshen up before we eat? And, and you say, That's fine. And they're gone for an age. And, and you, you go up and you listen. And they're having a bath in your house. As you say to yourself, that's a bit weird, isn't it? Folk freshen up. You don't need to have a bath before you have lunch at my house. Just go and wash your hands and come and eat. And, and that's how it is if we've been bathed in the pardoning mercy of God. As we walk through this world and, and, and we do stuff that we shouldn't do. And we become tainted by sin. We don't have to come to God to be born again all over again but we do need to be forgiven because that stuff comes between us and God and it, and it, and it, and it, and it sours that sweet relationship and, and we do need to be forgiven again and we do need to come and have our feet washed because as we make our way through this mucky dirty world some of it clings to our feet and we need to come and have our feet washed again so I often use the illustration of my children I've got five children, and uh, sometimes they do stuff that disappoints me, I have to say. Um, It's good fun being the father of five teenagers, and they don't hold much back um, on occasions. And uh, sometimes they say things to me, and sometimes they do things that disappoint. But that doesn't change the fact that they're my children. They're still my children. And I still love them. But it does mean that stuff has crept in between us and it needs to be resolved before that perfect relationship is restored again. And they need to say they're sorry once in a while. And you wouldn't believe this, but sometimes I have to say I'm sorry too. If that relation... Of course... But our father never needs to say sorry. But we as children, as we wander through this world, we disappoint him. We grieve him. We do stuff that we shouldn't do. And we need to be forgiven. Wasn't it David too, when he sinned, said, Restore unto me the joy of my salvation? Because somehow sin had crept in and just robbed him of his joy. That's the kind of things that happen as we wander through this world. Now, I hope that's a help to you uh, and I hope I, I want to just give you one piece of advice and, and then we'll a few quick words about Judas and we're finished. One, one quick uh, word of advice to you as a Christian is if you don't want Satan to rob you of your joy in your relationship with God, then keep short accounts with God and, and, and make sure that you do confess the things that grieve him. So that that sweet relationship between father and child and child and father can, can be what it should be. And that sin doesn't rob you of its sweetness. And it doesn't become burdensome and, and, and you lose your joy. Make sure that if you do stuff that's wrong that you do tell your father that you're sorry. And the last thing is this. Um, we did read a little bit about Judas and the devil had put it into his heart to betray Jesus. I I want to say this to you, Judas had already made up his mind to betray Jesus. He had already agreed to hand Jesus over to the religious leaders when the opportunity arose. And although the devil had put it into the heart of Judas, it's important to note that Judas is nowhere presented in scripture as a helpless pawn in the hands of the evil one. He was prompted to do what he wanted to do. He was helped to do what he wanted to do. But he wanted to do it. And Judas, I think, is one of the most tragic stories in all of Scripture. His teacher was Jesus. That was who he listened to, Jesus. His friends were the disciples. His work was the work of God. He took his place at the table. None of the other 11 suspected anything. But Jesus knew the truth. And Jesus knew that all of them were clean except for one of them. There was one sitting around that table who was not clean. Who was not the real deal. Who had never been bathed in the pardoning mercy of God who was a fake who was living it out on the outside but on the inside it wasn't real and Jesus said to his 12 disciples all of you are clean but not all of you not all of you because he knew who would betray him and we need to make sure that we are the real deal don't we? that we really have experienced the pardoning mercy of God And, and that Jesus can look at us And we know in our hearts whether Jesus can say this of us or not. Jesus can look at us and say, and you are clean. Because we know in our hearts that we've been cleansed by God's grace. So the three things were the introduction to Jesus. He told us who Jesus was. told us a little bit about Jesus. He was the one who came from the Father, was returning to the Father. Everything had been put under his uh, authority. He told us a little bit about Jesus' love and then he, he told us about Jesus as an example they wouldn't get down on the, their knees and wash each other's feet no no I'm not doing that that's beneath me we wouldn't even ask a slave to do that but the Lord of all glory got down on his knees and washed their feet and, and he calls on us to follow his example and to serve one another and then finally we looked a little bit at uh, the forgiveness of Jesus and we thought about the fact that yeah, there is a pardoning mercy and when you've experienced that you don't need to go and have a bath again. But there is that ongoing confession and that ongoing cleansing that we need to experience as God's children on a daily basis. So thank you so much for listening to me again.